here right, Chicago! Woo! Three titles in six years. Yes, it is worth cheering for. Welcome to another episode of Musings on Madison, your weekly Blackhawks update here on the Second City Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dave Melton, assistant editor here at Second City Hockey, and I've got my two usual line mates with me again, but uh, I don't have any clever introductions this week, so we're just going to go with the uh, the old meat and potatoes. First off, Brandon Kane is here. Hello. There's a bye week. There is a bye week. It's going to be glorious, too. I don't know what we're going to do in the evening, because like half the league takes off, right? Like there's, there's a lot of not games happening next week. A yeah. Lot there's a lot games. of not wearing pants either. So I'm all for that. <laughs> there we go. Party of Brandon's house apparently. Also with us tonight, the other, uh, our, our left winger, Shepard Price. Hi, I'm spending the bye week watching Royal Rumble live. Oh, it's in Texas. It's in Houston. It's oh, fancy, fancy. Well, yeah. have a great time with that. I, uh, I will not be watching on TV. You'll be watching the All-Star game? Uh, no. Well, maybe. I might glance at it. The All-Star game is usually pretty pretty, uh, pretty dull. Um, sometimes it gets interesting, like, near the end when the, the money's on the line. But other than that, it's like, eh, you can have it. It would have been more interesting if Gerard Gallant had gone. <laughs> I saw the thing about John Scott trying to campaign to be the head coach. I thought that would have been kind of funny. But that might he, He's won one. He knows, he knows how to win it. Yeah, that that might have been fun, and we can't have fun in hockey, so, you know, none of that. Zero fun, sir. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, well done. Well done, Brandon. So we're coming to you on a very, very late here on Wednesday evening, about 24 hours after the Blackhawks played against the Florida Panthers, and Coach Quinville was in town for the first time since getting fired. It was a very interesting night at the United Center. And I wanted to talk to Brandon first about this because uh, I was also fortunate enough to be in the building. You were up in the press box. And just what was – can you describe the atmosphere and, and just how it was like being in the building for that game? So the whole day was just a lot. I bet. I think to, to take in. It started with the Taves and Keith scuffle at the morning skate oh. kind of riled up the fan base a little bit. Completely forgot about that, by the way. <laughs> there was the the joke by uh, Roberto Luongo of they were fighting for Q's attention. Which was excellent. A-plus tweet, as always. Luongo's so good at Twitter. There was the mention before, like the day before, of like Quinville's going to speak because, you know, they're on the second half of a back-to-back. Um, but he will, you know, speak prior. And that morning there was like a bit of like, oh, yeah, like when are we going to talk to him? And then like TV people figuring out how hockey works. And, <laughs> oh, yeah, this is this is going to happen in the afternoon. And walking into the visiting NBA locker room, which is where the winners go in the United States. <laughs> Very true. And it was just like four rows of four chairs each. And everyone was just like packed in there and Quinville walks in and he was like, I've never seen this room before. <laughs> <laughs> and he held court for about 20 minutes, really. Which is probably the total of about five uh, press conferences from when he was the head coach. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like it. And he just seemed so relaxed and at ease being back. And um, he, he made a joke of, you know, glad to be back, but, Maybe not to see you people as the media. 
So he just seemed comfortable in a unfamiliar but yet familiar situation for him. The whole like thing of Kane having his 1,000 point ceremony. So that happened, and then there was the anthem. Then the game started in that stretch of opening face-off to the first TV timeout seemed like it didn't matter at all. Right, yeah. Everyone was just waiting for the inevitable video tribute that was coming. That's That was all anyone cared about. And it seemed like there was a second, a third, and maybe even a fourth wave of, like, the Q-Birds in the 300-level section below the press box. Like, right, right. Throughout that duration before the actual video tribute happened. And then it was just a just deafening noise in the building during that tribute. And it seemed like fans would kind of die off. And then once they showed Q like watching the tribute, then they just got louder and louder and louder again. Yeah. It was like they would show a fan in the crowd and like the cheering would level off and then they'd go back to Q and then it would rise up again. Yeah. And I don't think that there's been a time that I can remember where you put the anthem being the third loud, loudest cheer on the night in that right. building. Yeah, it was it was noticeably loud while they for all the ovations of Quinville and and it, like you said, I think it definitely was louder than the anthem. And I don't know, did you get a sense that it just seemed like there was a lot more? It was just a lot of a more lively building than I've noticed in a while. You know, you would think typical for the last home game before the break, but this was just a different level. Uh, the game before felt more because everyone was like, okay, Kane's going to get his thousand point. We know that. Like, he's on a point mm. streak. Like, this is going to happen. And people were just waiting and waiting until uh, it happened. And every single time Kane touched the puck, the building kind of hushed a little bit. And they're like, oh, it's right, going right, yeah. to happen. But with Tuesday night's game, it was. You had the Kane ceremony, the, the Quinville coming back, both teams riding season-long five-game winning streak. So, yeah, it's nice to have all those, you know, pre-game rah-rah-rah stuff, but also, like, the game actually mattered. Right. And I, don't, I don't think you can point to something in the last, I don't know, season and a half where you're like, this game matters, not just for one team, but for both teams. Yeah. Yeah, and I they had a few games last season against Central Division opponents. Like, they had the weekend back-to-back with Dallas and Colorado that they lost both games. And then they had the home-and-home home with Colorado over a weekend, and I think they got one point out of the second game. So it's kind of it's kind of a bummer that the, the way the game ended, unfortunately, and we'll, we'll get into that later. Uh, I just want to ask, uh, I know, Shepard, I imagine you were watching down in Texas. And did you get any sense of uh, any kind of a different atmosphere as you were watching it on TV? Uh, I texted my dad this, but, like, the Q tribute, watching it at home on the computer as I was doing uh, recap made me more emotional than I've been about hockey in a long time. Uh, and so I did, you couldn't really sense anything different on TV. Uh, especially because, again, it was during the TV timeout, and like the first place I saw the Q tribute was on Twitter uh, from the SCH account. But it was a special moment. Yeah, I was I was surprised that the Chicago broadcast, I believe, did not show most of the video. They just showed like 
the back half of it and then the crowd ovation that carried well over out of the break. I guess down in Florida, that broadcast, they broadcast the entire video along with the ovation, which is surprising that the road team gave more airtime to Quinville than the home broadcast did. But I mean, the, the home broadcast probably knows the fact that Q and, and how much the fans still love him probably makes the current administration look bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, I imagine there had to be some influence there for sure. But I also think it's like, I don't. I think Scott Powers wrote this in the the piece that him and Mark Lazarus tag teamed on uh, at the Athletic, where it's like you knew that boos were going to happen during Jeremy Colleton's introduction on Tuesday. Which, which there, I'm, there I'm starting been. to, get, I'm kind of starting to get sick of those because like they they've won five in a row. They've won like eleven of sixteen or something like that. Like. <clears throat> You can you can ease off on the booze for a little bit. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, and that's that's you know pretty much what Scott said. Of you can dislike what the team's done and what Colleton's done, but there's no Colleton versus Quinville thing with the team. Colleton, like that's just, yeah, that's just something that the the fan base has made up. Like that's not a real thing. There's yeah. a thing of. Colleton came to the Blackhawks and was like, yes, I will be the AHL coach when he was hired because he saw all the success that Quinville had had. And he was like, I can learn and grow as a coach under this guy because it's filtering down to me. And that's why he came to Chicago organization in the first place. So there's no him versus Quinville thing that people think there is. Yeah. Um, Quinville called him. Quinville called Colleton, congratulated him on getting the job after Colleton got Quinville's job. Right. That's not the administration I was talking about. I was talking about the guy who actually fired Quinville. (laughs) His name is Stan Bowman. Yeah. Well, yeah, we knew they didn't get along. Yeah, I just – I'm I'm on board with you, Dave, where it's like there's – I understand fans, you know, frustrations of – how things have gone under Colleton's watch, but of late, it really doesn't make sense to be booing. Yeah. I guess sports fans tend to do things that don't make sense. So that's just kind of the way they work. Unfortunately. Shocking development. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, but transitioning to the actual game itself and Shepard, I'll talk to you about this first is it was kind of a bummer that they, they lost and it was, I think it's more of a bummer is the way they lost because on ice, like it seemed like there was uh, the Hawks were pretty even at five on five play. I don't think the possession metrics were, were off that much. I think there were some score effects in play in the third period when the Hawks really took over possession, but it didn't really feel like the Hawks were outmanned on the ice when, in terms of skaters, but Leonard just picked a really bad night to have what's probably his worst game of the season. So I guess what, what were your thinking as you were watching the game and recapping it for our website? Yeah, I saw the same thing you did, which is that the that five on five, and also during, during over the course of the game, the Blackhawks sort of had uh, a lead, even if the even if the game was fairly evenly played. Um, the Blackhawks always sort of maintained control to some extent, even if it was just like one shot attempt versus the the Panthers more. Uh, but uh, Robin Leonard allowed four goals against. Um, one of the one of the advanced stats we talk about on this podcast and and deep dive and all that all, all across the site is expected goals 
I think Robin Leonard had one of his worst performances in terms of expected goals. He was only expected to give up 2.01, and he gave up four. That's uh, minus 1.99 uh, goal saved above, above, uh, above expected. Look, look at the not, math. What work? Which is not, uh, not great, and it might be one of his worst performances of the year of his season so far. Yeah, I think the, the one goal that Vitrano got, which I didn't even realize Frank Vitrano had a hat trick until I think I was listening to the radio on the drive home. Like, I had no idea he had scored three goals. Like, if Huberto or Barkov or somebody, like one of their bigger names that had three goals, I think it might have registered more. Like, I barely even knew who Vitrano was. So, but the the one goal that went through the five hole, I think that was the one where, where you kind of realize Leonard just doesn't have it tonight for whatever reason. It just that, that made it apparent that he was off and that if the Hawks were going to win this game, they were going to have to win a track meet and outscore Florida. And like I, they came close. And after they got – after Kane scored that goal with about – it was like a little over a minute left. Like, 135. Yeah. Yeah. The place – 115. It was 115? Yeah, I'm looking at the box score, 115. Brandon must have had to write that. But, like, the place erupted yeah. – pretty loud and, and there was already a noticeable emptying of the crowd at that point but there was a pretty good eruption for that goal and the you could like feel the anticipation if the Hawks had scored to tie the game up it would have been it might have rivaled the ovation that Q got at this uh during his tribute video because there was I think there there's a lot of people with the way the Hawks have been playing there's a lot of good good thoughts good feelings about the team and they've just gotten that game time goal to maybe steal a point even if you lose in overtime that might have been just another step forward for this team. But that's, again, it kind of goes back to the same point where, you know, you don't want to put too much emphasis on this one because it was against an Eastern Conference opponent. So the two points don't hurt as much. And they did just beat Winnipeg on Sunday night in a game that could loom large down the stretch because the Hawks and Jets are currently tied each with 54 points. And Winnipeg lost tonight. So now they're each at 51 games played. So they're dead even. And because the Hawks won that game, that's a four-point swing. So you can't say that the Hawks have lost every time it's been a big game, but it also did seem like they kind of didn't rise to the occasion that was there. Brandon, what were your thoughts about that? Yeah, I had the same thought as you, Dave, when I noticed that Vitrano completed the hat trick. I was like, you know, if you were to say a guy would score a hat trick in this game, but Toronto would not be on my top 10 list. He, yeah, like I barely I, so I barely knew who he was. I think I wrote his name in, in the lines for the preview and still couldn't tell you anything about him. But apparently he's yeah, on mean, fire. Yeah, I mean, a guy that wore 77 scored four goals because Doc had one too, which is just <laughs> strange. Like, who the hell wears 77? But, right. Um, not yeah, a good I, hockey number. I had the same thoughts that you guys had where it – it looked like as the game kind of shifted more into the third, the Blackhawks were like, oh, well, uh, let's not get blown out here at home for our last game in probably, what, three weeks or so? Yeah. And they just kind of slowly but surely pushed the pace. And I think because it was Doc who scored that first goal, it gave the team more energy. And like, oh, yeah, birthday goal, like and the way he scored it too, like that that was a pretty filthy back end. It was it was as uh someone who will go unnamed in the press box said, he just said fuck it and went with <laughs> it. 
<laughs> yeah, like it was, it was kind of a, like it reminded me, it reminded me of the goal Patrick Kane scored against Ilya Brzezgalov against the Wild in the playoffs back in the last decade. I think it was an uh, either an overtime winner or a game-winning goal late in the third period. But it kind of had that feel to it because he just skated in on the backhand. It didn't look particularly threatening, and then he just ripped a backhander right under the bar that very few goalies are going to stop. And that was, that was the, I think, one of the – it hasn't happened a ton with Kirby Doc, and we can dive into this maybe now or later, but uh, Kirby Doc was a monster in that game. And that goal was, I think, one of the first times where Doc did something that really made me like, holy shit, this kid might be awesome. Yeah, I think with talking with him post game, he said that, and it's so, so strange that he says this because it makes me feel so damn old. But he said, you know, we asked him, like, backhander seems like that's something that's been, you've been working on lately and it finally paid off. And he was like, yeah, you know, we, you know, growing up, you kind of look in, at NHL players, and it's like I look at Kaner growing up and see what he does and try to emulate that as I grew up. And I was just like, holy shit, like I feel so old right now. Yeah, yeah, I grew up watching Kane, who I remember him being drafted. So that's that's <clears throat> a pretty rough feeling. Yeah, but it's like that it goes back to the scouting report, I think that we've talked about where Doc is a great hockey player. And – he probably will be long-term, but it's those stretches where he's inconsistent and it's maybe not that his game is inconsistent. It's that his offensive production is inconsistent and he becomes more reliable on the defensive side of the game. You know, he's not putting up those numbers and you're like, that's what a guy who's drafted at that point should be doing, but his game kind of shifts and it's that part of, as he gets older, bridging the gap on that area. That sounds very Taves-like. I mean, that would be the, the hope, right? Yeah, yeah. If he turns into Jonathan Taves, fine. That, that's kind of what you're hoping for. Shepard, did you notice anything else out of Doc or anybody else during the game Tuesday night or maybe even going back to the game against Winnipeg on Sunday? Sort of to talk about <clears> – <throat> To touch on the inconsistency, he doesn't shoot the puck is the is the whole thing with him and yeah. his offensive production yeah. is that he just doesn't shoot the puck. And that's something that needs to change if he's going to be better. Um, watching him, yeah, he was – that whole line with Kampf and Debrinkat was excellent in that game. Um, they drove the puck really well. And I think that's something the Blackhawks are sort of finding going back to Winnipeg and maybe even Toronto is the those current, those current lines are honestly better – than anything they've sort of assembled to this point. Because Brandon Saad and Patrick Kane sort of counter, counter, counterbalance each other with Ryan Carpenter. Um, it'll be interesting to see where Dylan Strom's plots back in on this lineup. Yeah, and, and, and that's another very positive thought about this team is they're still not really at full strength because uh, with Strom coming back, ideally the first game out of the big break coming up, you can hit back at him in, into the top six, and if everything else – stays at the level it's at the offense takes another step forward like they can hang with all the teams that are in this wild card chase and they might be able to steal a game or two against some of the top teams in the league and maybe we're talking about a playoff team in about three months that'd be which would be a welcome change from the way the last three seasons have gone before we get too off topic with any other stuff Brandon and Shep or either one of you guys want to chime in the Taves Kane fights or excuse me Taves and Keith fight 
ultimately seem like absolutely nothing to me. Is that where you guys are at? That's where I'm at. Yeah. Sort of after, after an initial shock to it. Cause I've, I, the only team sport we've talked about this, the only team sport I've ever played is Quidditch. Uh, I broke my foot in seventh grade football and I didn't do anything until college. We didn't fight in Quidditch. So I'm not used to teammates fighting each other. So it sort of struck me as odd, especially two guys who are longtime captains and locker room voices fighting was weird, especially the part where Sheldon Brookbank broke them up. But yeah, that's it. it after a while, it's, it's nothing. Yeah, you guys don't like beat each other with the broomsticks at all? No. Uh, I, I like, I, I, we're not going to go down this road, but I could talk to you about <laughs> Quidditch a lot longer than I ever wish I could. But I have a, have a brother who plays Quidditch and talks about it all the time. So I know way more about that sport, but let's, let's just, just get stitches. <laughs> well, actually stitches give stitches usually in Quidditch. All right. That's <laughs> so, so anyway, hockey things. It's been, it's been a really good stretch. Even if you factor in the loss, they've won five of six. They're back in the playoff chase. It'll be interesting to see where the standings look come next Saturday because of the Hawks not playing any games for a while. And we'll see what all the other teams do because you look at them right now, they are, they're tied with Winnipeg as the, I guess, third place team in the wildcard chase and the top two spots are taken by Arizona and Vegas right now. And they come out of the break and play Arizona. So they're going to be right into a crucial game that they're going to need to win. And at, at a minimum, you've got to not let Arizona leave with two points. Ideally, you win that game in regulation. It's a four-point swing in the standings. It'd be a huge way to start the final two months of the season. But then the team, the team that has me worried slightly is Nashville because they have 51 points, so they're three behind the Hawks. But they still have four games in hand. And that team has looked like it's been massively underperforming all season long. And if they just figure something out, they're the one team that I could see just rocket way up the standings. Uh, Winnipeg doesn't worry me as much anymore. Minnesota, forget about it. San Jose looks like that entire thing is coming crashing down to earth. And then Anaheim and LA are too far away to even discuss. So it's still very much there for the taking. It's going to be an interesting two months. And it's also going to be very interesting to see how the Blackhawks approach the trade deadline and contracts that are expiring and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we're going to get into probably during next week's show because we won't have any games to talk about but we're going to take a break right now and when we come back we're going to get a quick Rockford Icehogs update from Brandon Kane and then we're going to talk about some sustainability issues or maybe non-issues with the way the Blackhawks have been playing over the last month or two. Welcome back to Musings on Madison and as promised before the break we're going to talk to Brandon Kane who's been covering the Rockford Ice Hogs for us, along with his Blackhawks coverage, and he was at the BMO Harris Center tonight. Well, were they playing at the BMO, or were they in Chicago? Or oh, they were at the Dallas? BMO. They were where? They were at the BMO. So did you go to Beef Room on the way home? I did not. I had the uh, – oh, what the hell is that called? The the pork sandwich place on, in the in the building. I have no idea. Oh, I know what you're talking about, <clears throat> but I can't remember the name of it. So anyway – Rockford Ice Hogs. We've heard from your reporting and from what you can just see by looking at the scores that their offense is struggling mightily right now. The goaltending has improved, and I hear Colin Delia has rebounded from a rough start to the season. So uh, just what are some of the things that have been going on with the Blackhawks farm team? Yeah, so they've had quite the 
I guess, roster turnover. And it hasn't just been guys being called up. There's been injuries as well. Um, yeah, so it's I been think, a lot of like – another thing that gets lost in the mixture is that whenever the Hawks have to call guys up, they're usually taking some of the best players from Rockford. And that can affect them greatly, which has to make coaching a minor league team a nightmare. Yeah, because there's the thing of you've lost one of your top scorers and that isn't just going to affect that one line. It's going to affect the whole unit, right? Yes. And then also you have to bring in someone from Indy and they either are doing this for the first time or they were playing in Rockford last season and now they're probably not too happy that they're in Indy. So there's probably a personality thing that you have to deal with there. So there's a lot of factors into it. And I think King's done a fairly good job with the guys that have been brought up, whether they're from Indy or they've been signed from PTOs and they were on another or in another organization in the ECHL. So um, they've done, they've got some scoring from guys, but they're still dead last in the league in scoring. So, I see the problem. Um, yeah, that is a big key to winning games is scoring goals. No. I know, right? Shocking update. But um, So they've got Dylan Sakura back. They have Brandon Hagel. John Quinville is back. But they're without Anton Wadeen, who is a really great two-way player for them. Uh, Philip Kurashev is on the shelf as well. So What happened to with- Kurashev? It was an open ice hit against Manitoba and he exited the game and he's been out ever since. And I think it's been three weeks now. So just a upper body injury is what it's being labeled. So you can read between the lines on that. I think the initials on that are CP. Yeah, probably. The big thing with the team is that if you look up and down the roster, you have maybe four veterans with Cramarosa, Tyler Sakura, um, Ian McCaution. And I, yeah, and I guess you could throw Dylan Sakura in that mix at this point. So for the most part, they're all like first or second year pros. So it's a super young team, which makes it a fun, tight knit team, but it makes it a lot more fun when you're winning. So that's something that they're, they're dealing with now that they didn't have to deal with in November when they went on that, little hot streak that they had. And the one player I specifically wanted to ask you about, and I think um, I might mention his name earlier already, but uh, Colin Delia had a rough start and Kevin Lincoln really emerged and seemed like he had passed up Delia on the depth chart. It sounds like Lincoln is still playing well, but uh, according to what I've been hearing and reading, uh, Colin Delia's turned stuff around as well. Oh, definitely. It's been a thing of, there's been some things he said in his personal life that have been, you know, a bit, I guess, distracting, which seems like not the correct word to use there, but that's what I'll go with. Um, and since things have smoothed out in that area, his game has also improved. Um, but with Colin, it's always been, he's really focused on like the mental side of the game and that. So when other things in life aren't going right and he's still a young guy he's trying to figure out you know how do you balance being a pro and being kind of like that tweener guy where everything pointed 
after last season that he was going to be a backup in the NHL. And then now he's number one in the AHL like he was last year. And it's not, you know, where he wanted to be. So how do you get over that and just say, well, I'm here, I'm going to make the most of my opportunity and dominate and kind of force Chicago's hand to make a decision on what they want to do with me because I'm under contract for two more years after this. Yeah, Ben Pope did a story about this in the Sun-Times in, I think it was early December, and I'm, I'm flipping through it right now. It was, oh, sorry, it was actually a couple weeks ago. It was dated January 13th. But the I, he had some – you can understand why he might his game might have slipped as he had – his girlfriend became unexpectedly pregnant, and then she had some health issues. And it sounds like everything is okay now, and it's getting better. So because like, – like you mentioned, Brandon – when his personal life got stabilized that he was able to kind of help him kind of get settled himself. And now it's leading to better play on the ice. So that's a good sign for him. And, and like you've talked about Delia is very, he's a very aware type of goalie just of his like mental state. And he's, he's a much different than most pro athletes you're going to talk to, especially hockey players. He's just got, he's a different approach to things that I think it, it's, it makes him a lot more interesting than a lot of athletes you're going to meet uh, in pro sports and just makes him uh, makes him an, an interesting guy to watch. And he's certainly not going to be out of the Blackhawks plans. He's got a three-year deal, I think, at $1 million per season. That's a very affordable deal, whether he's the starter or the backup. So I don't think he's going to be playing himself out. I don't, I don't think he's done anything to discount himself from future consideration within the organization. So I think he's another name to keep an eye on as is Kevin Lankinen, who's been playing very well too. So there's nothing wrong with having two good goalies on your AHL team. Or yeah. And they're both AHL 24 team. or 25 too. So they're, they're young. Yeah. And, and as to make the Corey Crawford comparison, Crawford spent the better part of five or six seasons, I believe down in in the minors before he made the jump to the NHL level. So Goalies can have a much longer, much longer uh, trajectory before they get to the NHL. So it's not, it's not entirely uncommon for him to spend another two or three seasons down to the AHL before he jumps up. I'm pulling up Crawford numbers. He had five full seasons in Rockford before he came up to Chicago. Well, two were in Norfolk, but five seasons in the AHL. So Delia's had what one and a half, and and I'm not. And Lincoln's probably about the same. So. Um, there's no reason to make any sort of conclusions about those guys because there's probably a much longer clock on them than any of us realize. Yeah. And it, well, it's, it's also like the awareness of the fan base as well. And just right. media in general, like if you were to go back in time, like I feel like people weren't like, Oh, this Crawford guy's been here for four or five years. Like what the hell's wrong with him? Like call right. him up already. Yeah. Like, but now, if that were to happen, people would be going nuts. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a and it's important to remember that there's goaltenders like Jonathan Quick, who spent time in the ECHL, and that a guy like Jordan Bennington was an average AHL goaltender. So you never know. Again, it goes back to the point that goaltenders are voodoo. Yes. I don't think there's like a certain thing you can say with any goalies. Like, if he does this, he's going to be good. Or if he does this, he's going to be bad. It's just – cross your fingers and hope something good happens, which is not encouraging, but that's just the way it is. Kind of the reality of the situation. So moving back to the NHL level. Now we want, did want to 
maybe not look ahead because there's going to be plenty of time off between now and the Blackhawks' next game, but kind of look at the recent run of play the Blackhawks have had and kind of decide. The main thing is trying to compare it this Blackhawks run to what they did last season. Because last season the Blackhawks had a stretch where they won 10 of 12 games and then all of a sudden whatever good fortune they had disappeared and they ended up missing the playoffs. Boston happened. Well, yeah, Boston happened. A lot of things happened. But <laughs> but the point being that I guess the question here is, is what the Blackhawks are doing, is it sustainable or is it a flash-in-the-pan thing and is the luck going to run out? And Shepard, I – I know you've been looking into things related to the power play. So uh, I know this is an article that you've been working on that you're going to write. So I don't want you to give away the entire thing, but what are some of the things that you've been learning about the Blackhawks power play, which has probably been the weakest of weak spots on this team? Uh, the Blackhawks power play. I'll, I think I'll just, I'll, again, I'll keep it. I'll keep this brief since I have an article coming out on it is entirely sort of focused around getting high danger chances. And without Dylan Strom and Andrew Shaw, and before Drake Kajula got back, didn't really have anybody who was great at scoring from high danger. Um, and so they have the league's worst high danger shooting percentage on the power play. Uh, and so when your system is kind of predicated on a system that revolves around the worst shooting percentage in the league, uh, it's not going to go great. But if it's the worst shooting percentage in the league, it might also improve uh, and regress to the mean. And in this case, that'd be positive. And in this case, that means the power play could take off down the rest of the stretch. Now, um, when you mentioned the high danger changes thing, and I, I feel like I should know this, but I don't, so I'm going to have to ask you, is high danger chances just the area of the ice that the shot comes from? Is that why it's determined a high danger or not high danger? Yeah, high danger <clears> – <throat> is a shot that comes from in sort of the uh, – It's like, like the home the plate. The coordinates on, on ice between uh, the two face-off dots um, and the crease and then sort of the Royal Road uh, a little it's bit. It's kind of shaped like, the home, like a home plate in baseball, right? Yes, it is. It's, okay. it's, it's, now it's, I know the, it's the home plate. Okay. Be, and the reason I ask that is because it seems like the only time the Hawks get shots in close on the power play is when Taves gets the puck on the left side of the net, or I guess it's on, it's, if you're from behind the net, it's to the left. And then he tries to stuff at home and the goalie, it, I don't think it's worked the season where he tried to stuff at home and he scored upon it. And then maybe they get one or two other whacks of the puck, but they're in so close at that point that all they're going to hit are the goalie's pads and nothing ever happens. So I, the, it seems like the solution to that problem is to have a guy who can play better in front of the net, like Shaw or Kajula, who can redirect shots from the point. And I believe Drake Kajula scored a goal doing that exact thing Tuesday night against Florida. Did he not? Yes, he did. He did. Cause I think, and like it was like two seconds left on the power play, it was just barely a power play goal. So maybe that's something that could change over the last course of the month. Cause if the Blackhawks power play starts producing at a better rate, then everything's going to look good about this team. Cause I've, I'm also working on an article um, that's detailing Chicago's play at five-on-five five situations. And the the thing that's surprising me that I didn't realize, like in every metric that they measure, I'm talking Corsi's, uh, like advanced and not advanced stats, Corsi events, shots for, goals for, expected goals for, high danger chances. In the last 
18 games, the Blackhawks are outplaying their season averages. So they're, they've been playing better at five on five for the last 18 games than they have the rest of the season, which for me personally, I take that as wildly encouraging because, you know, power play and penalty kill have their importance, but five on five play is for the most part where you win or lose most of your hockey games. And the Blackhawks are playing better at five on five and they still have probably the best goalie duo in the league. That would suggest that more wins are coming. And the reason I bring that up and kind of comparing it back to that 12-game stretch last season where they won 10 of 12, I did the same math where I was looking at all the metrics, and they were playing below their season averages during that time. They were just propped up by a power play that went crazy for about a month. Then the power play luck ran out, and the season tanked, and they missed the playoffs. So it would suggest that maybe they figured something out during five-on-five play, that's going to lead to better play throughout the rest of the season. And I guess, Brandon, now that you've heard all this information and I know you've been watching this team plenty from the press box and on TV, do you have any thoughts about whether or not what they're doing is sustainable? I still don't think it's sustainable because of the quality of competition. I want to see what they can do against – Quality opponents. They just beat one of the hottest uh, opponents in the league, though, in Toronto. And they pretty much dominated Toronto. That is true. Although I believe – was Toronto on a hot streak entering that game? I feel like Toronto's been plummeting. I think, I think it's fair to say that they've been one of the best teams in the league since Sheldon Keefe took over the team. See – I, I, I would need to look this up now because it's bothering me. Because their last 10, which would include a couple games after the the game against the Hawks, they're 4-3-3, three, and three, which isn't great. No. But but that's still a quality opponent. It's- yeah, I, I – yes, certainly. Well, let's see. Before that game, they were – they'd won – oh, well. And it was in December that they really went nuts and won 9 of 10, looks like. And then they lost three in a row, and then they won, and then they lost, and then they played the Hawks. So, if you – they've won one of their last six, but before that they won nine of their last ten. So, I guess they were coming down off a high. I still would call that a quality. So, a lot like their fans. <laughs> Zing. Yeah, way to, way to work that one in there, Brandon. Yeah, it's I, because I do- pot is legal in Canada. That was the joke. I, I got you. I got you. Okay. Also, also legal just, in Illinois. Yes, it is. Can can confirm. I'm right next door, but yes. <laughs> but yeah, Brandon, I, I think you have a good point because they, the Toronto game was good, yes. But they also beat Anaheim, who's garbage, Ottawa, who's rebuilding, Montreal, who's not great, Winnipeg, who's plummeting out of everything. They beat Detroit. I guess the only other good wins you can look at were the three at the end of 2019 when they beat New York, beat the Islanders, Columbus, and Calgary. Those three wins, those are three pretty good wins. So, I mean, there's – I guess there's there's reasons for optimism and there's reasons to be not optimistic. Pessimistic is the word I'm looking for there. So, I think there's there's both – there's there's nuance here. There's You can see each side of the argument. I think they've got, they've got very good tests coming up. Coming out of the lengthy break, we already mentioned, they play Arizona, then they get Minnesota – then they host the Bruins, which that, that'll be a very tough game. And then they go Western Canada, which this 
this trip I think will be very telling about this team because they play Winnipeg, Edmonton, Vancouver, Calgary, Winnipeg. And those are three games against teams in the playoffs, and then Winnipeg is with them in the chase for a wild card spot. So that – and then there's that five-game stretch, and then you factor in the other two. It's seven of their next eight games are on the road. I think they only have three home games the entire month of February. We're going to yeah, learn a lot true. about this team in the month of February. I think – Well, yeah, because it's a 24-day window until the trade deadline too. Yeah. I, I so think after I, that, like, that weird stretch of Western Canada that you brought up, you hopefully know where this team stands on the ledger of go for it at the trade deadline or don't. Yeah, and I I think the worst thing would be if they went, like, 500 and they're four or five points out to where you may not want to wave the white flag, but – if you did, it wouldn't be the worst idea because you're probably not going to leave everybody. Like, hopefully they're either, like, one or two points out or in a wild card spot or, like, ten points out. Like, because if they just float in the middle like they've done for the last two and a half seasons, it's going to lead to – there's going to be half the fan base calling for them to trade everyone. The other half of the fan base will be calling for them to add players, and it's just not going to be pleasant. So hopefully, hopefully they pick a lane by the results that happen over the next month. And that seems like a pretty good place to put a bow on this edition of Musings on Madison. Any other final thoughts, gentlemen? I, I was going to tell you not to all jump at once, but go ahead, Shepard. I, if, after losing to Q and Mike Kitchen and Dale Talon, uh, this might be a, cha- a time to make a coaching change. Um, we, talk- we talked about how the power play is still in the bottom five. If there is a coaching change going forward, it's probably going to be there, I-, I would think. I I, th- I see your point because there's a 10-day layoff, but I think the coaching change ship has sailed for the rest of the season. One can dream. <laughs> Are you well, saying, like, Colleton or assistant-wise? Assistant. I don't think we oh, fire. Oh, okay, okay. I see what you're saying. That assistant, makes yeah. that makes more sense. Assistant coach could be, yeah. The head. That, I thought you were meant the head coach. No, like, I, I think that, yeah, I, I agree. I agree that ship has sailed. But Thomas Hotel, I don't think is sailed. He's an interesting interview. Whenever he's on, they do the second intermission or right before the third period. They always talk to an assistant coach. He's gotten better, but like the first few times, he just had this like death stare at the camera. Just no personality whatsoever on his face. And every, he just sounded like a like a Bond villain every time he talked because he has that Euro, European accent. It just it was it was not great. It's gotten better though, so you know. But but yeah, the the way the power play has been not producing. Although hey, maybe it starts a big streak after scoring the goal last night. Who knows? Uh, Brandon Kane, any final thoughts from you? Not really. Just keep your eyes out on the site. We'll have a lot of. Coverage during the bye week, uh, highlighted by a Q&A that I did with uh, Rockford head coach Derek King. Yes, and that actually leads into what I was going to mention, is that we've got plenty of content coming at secondcityhockey.com over the next week and a half. We're going to do some bigger picture stuff. I've got a number of Munchers article I'm working on talking about some of the data we referenced in this podcast. You know, Shepard's got the article looking into the power play. We've got some prospect updates to discuss. So there's, there's going to be plenty of reasons 
to, to check out the website. We'll have a lot of stuff to read to keep everyone busy for the next week and a half when there's no games on TV. And then we will definitely have another episode of Musings on Madison next week to look at some bigger picture things and debate some things that may or may not happen in the next month and kind of explore some different routes the Blackhawks can go with the trade deadline. Uh, and we're, I didn't even want to mention it earlier in this podcast because I didn't want to get sidetracked, but the goalie situation is going to be fascinating to watch because there's about 300 different ways they could go, and I'm very interested to see what else. Sparta. <laughs> there you go. Nice, nice Sparta reference. Doesn't, doesn't get enough play whenever someone uses the number 300. But, yes, stay tuned to secondcityhockey.com. Follow us on Twitter at 2NDCityHockey. Brandon Kane is on Twitter at Brandon M. Kane. Shepard Price is at Shepard Price. I am at underscore Dave Melton. Feel free to follow us on and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your podcast. Like us, leave a review, all those good things. Uh, and if you have anything bad to say, just tell Brandon on Twitter because Shepard and I may, might miss it. Uh, thank you so <laughs> much for listening. <laughs> yeah, th- you're welcome, Brandon. Enjoy the hate mail. Uh, but thank you so much for listening to this episode of Musings on Madison and go on. Da, 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 da.